the amount of rubbish that we accumulate every week is astounding. I used to work at a waste centre and it always astounded me the amount of products that came through with price tags still on it that had never been opened, that had never been used. Welcome to another episode of This Catholic Life, conversations about life's ups and downs, big and small, how we deal with every situation imaginable, whatever life throws at us, but still manage to be sensible, practical, and joyful. Today's show I'm calling Eco Warrior, a kind of a pun on a name that we gave to a friend of ours who's with us today. Not so much one topic as an opportunity to air some discussion and general points and um, clarify some things about ecology and in particular, from my perspective, uh, how this relates to the Catholic faith. I'm your host, Peter Holmes, and today I'm joined by Alison, who worked as a school teacher before running a successful business in eco-education. I think you have a, a degree in bio... Environmental science. Bio, in environmental science, there you go. And I has studied recently mangroves. Has <laughs> completed, <laughs> completed a, a degree in fine art, is that correct? I did, I completed my Master's of Art in Visual Art. There you go, in visual art. Before we get started, just a reminder to all listeners that if you like the show, you should subscribe on your podcast app and that way you won't miss another episode. Let's dive right in. Eco Warrior was a name that we kind of jokingly gave you, or perhaps you gave it to yourself at one stage when you were doing eco education for school kids and for anyone who would come and listen, frankly, about how to not just recycling, but the whole ecological um, approach to things. So let's start by defining what we're talking about. What do we mean by eco-activism or something like that? Mm, I don't love the term eco-warrior, per se. I think <laughs> Which you is may why have given it, me that way. term. Thank you so much for that. That's fantastic. But it's much better than the term worm lady, which I was also known as because I used to do that whole series of activities with school kids teaching them about um, where their food came from and teaching them how to make worm farms. Right. So, but environmental activism, I think, is more to do with, I mean, there's been a great shift of thinking in environment, especially with the quarantine and lockdown, I think, because we're so locked into our homes at the moment and there's that whole slowing down of everything and intention behind our act. So, right. You know, like, for instance, just even doing the most basic things, like taking a metal straw with you instead of taking a plastic straw. I mean, I go a bit extreme with that and I take a whole cutlery set and a napkin <laughs> as well as metal straw Don't and they get offended sticks. at the restaurant, though, when you turn up with your own cutlery? <laughs> nah. <laughs> I, I, just, <laughs> I just don't take theirs. But, I mean, it's that kind of intention too, you know, like intentionally saying, well, I'm not going to take a disposable thing from you because I actually have no need for that. I'm right. just going to take what I have. So it, a lot of this is about convenience though, isn't it? We are the only There's no real need for that kind of uh, cutlery if we had organised ourselves enough to have some on hand, so to speak. Oh, but the whole disposable thing is about convenience. It's about the throwaway culture. Um, I guess the question is, why should we care? So people are going, what's the big deal? It just goes in the rubbish. I mean, there's no. It's not like I'm throwing it in the in in the river or something. I'm putting it in the rubbish bin. Why would we care about that sort of thing? Except you kind of are throwing it in the river just by putting it in the bin, aren't you? How you is know, that like, the case? We just. How do we actually? What happens with our waste? 
our waste goes to the dump basically you know like even the yep. recycling that we do a lot of the recycling that happens and we've seen recently like with china sending all of our recycling back it doesn't get recycled it just right. goes to the dump and so, so in other words it's landfill yeah it's all landfill so what I mean, what is landfill exactly? It's just a hole in the ground, you know, like where we put our rubbish. And the amount of rubbish that we accumulate every week is astounding. I used to work at a waste centre and it always astounded me the amount of products that came through with price tags still on it that had never been opened, that had never been used. And right. that, yep. and clothes, for instance, is massive. It's a massive problem. And people are like, well, doesn't that just you know, degrade down. Well, no, it doesn't because a lot of our clothes are synthetic materials and those right. are plastics. So one of the things that keeps coming up here, and this is probably why some Catholics have an aversion to this whole ecological activism thing, is because often, very often, it's tied with the population debate. Where Are we overpopulated? And it seems like a logical mm. argument to say, well, more people equals more rubbish, but in practice... No. In fact, it doesn't necessarily mean that. There are there are cultures, for example, and people who admittedly are much poorer than us who are making much less waste per capita than mm. we are. A consumerist culture makes more rubbish, not more people per se. Yeah, like so, a disposable lifestyle. Yeah, it kind of ties more in with the minimalist lifestyle than I think overpopulation. For me, overpopulation is another. It's a completely different topic. It's not... Right. tied in with environmental activism for me. I didn't realise it was for you. No, um, it, it tends to come, the, the way we, people tend to encounter it is, um, for example, I have uh, rather more children than the average. Um, mm. And when I'm when I'm greeted with horror in the supermarket, if someone sees me with all my children or with even half of my children, the, the point is, that is always made to me is, um, don't you care about the environment? Yeah. And... That that seems to be a point of contact, if you like. And frankly, I was raised by somebody who really did care about nature and taught us not to pollute. And that and that crapping in your own backyard is a bad idea. In other words, you don't pollute the earth that that um, and from a Christian perspective that God mm. gave us. And if, if you believe that God gave it to you, why would you crap on it? You know, why would you mm. treat it badly? That it just doesn't make sense. The problem seems to be when people propose solutions uh, which don't take into account you know the the various uh, convictions people have. Um, if you, for instance, if you say this particular habit uh, is is creating problems for our society, uh, what we need to do is propose a solution which takes which allows people of different beliefs, I guess, to come together in that solution to actually agree on what's a good solution. I don't. I think it's perfectly reasonable and actually proper to to Christians to care about the. The environment to care about not being wasteful. I mean, I saw some stat recently that said forty percent of food in the U.S. ends up going in the bin because mm. of just the way the system works and the quality control. Now, I'm all for quality control, but when it's so protective and and terrified of um, lawsuits that it ends up you throw out vast quantities of food just in case you might get sued. Mm. Uh, it just seems to be an absurd use of our our resources. I think that. Caring about the environment kind of goes beyond the religious factor. I think it's more a people and humanity factor. You know, like we have finite resources here. We're all living on the same planet. If you're throwing your rubbish out into your neighbor's backyard, 
they're going to get real annoyed about that, you know? Like, <laughs> I'd be real annoyed about that. In fact, I am real annoyed about it <laughs> just because you walk down. Well, for now, for instance, at I lived on, near the beachfront um, right. and people are walking down there but they're leaving huge amounts of rubbish because more people are trying to get out. But right. they just leave all their rubbish down there. Before the quarantine, that didn't happen as much because there weren't as many people trying to walk out there. Right. That takes away from the aesthetics of the place as well as the environmental factor, you know? like it also it affects it affects the, the animals that are there. It affects our enjoyment oh, totally. of that place. It, I mean, also, it's not just the look of it. There, there are toxins in these sorts of products which don't degrade easily, and if they do, they then poison the environment to some extent. Mm. There's a whole lot of reasons for, for watching out for these things, but the, the big, if you like, the elephant in the room that everyone's talking about when they talk about the environment is this, this thing that started out being, um, you know, watch out for global cooling, then it became global warming, and now they're just simply calling it climate change. And whether or not humans contribute to that. Now, in my opinion, and maybe I can throw this at you, in some respects, it's become a little bit of a, a red herring because even if we could demonstrate either one way or the other, if we could demonstrate that polluting the environment didn't affect the weather, mm. it's still a bad idea to pollute the environment. It's still a, a really bad idea in all other methods of measurement. If we could demonstrate it, um, the question is still the same. What's the alternative to continue with um, things that are essential? And if things aren't essential that are damaging the environment, why keep doing them? I mean, we've you and I have watched with somewhat amazement at the effects that the shutdown in various places in the world has had on the environment, that almost mm -hmm. instantly, within weeks of us stopping mm -hmm. these industries, you've suddenly got immense change in in pollution you can see things you couldn't see before there's you know there's dolphins swimming around in cities that that have uh, water for streets there's there's all kinds of amazing things happening after such a short time of us changing mm. our habits we saw brisbane city the other day there's a coming back to my house from the local shopping center there's this hill where you can actually see all the way into the cbd and most days it's just covered in smog like you cannot See, it right. looks like it's covered in cloud. But we looked at it just like a couple of days ago and we're like, oh my God, you can, sorry, you can actually you can see. <laughs> you can actually see. We're allowed to mention see, God in a Catholic podcast. That's fine. <laughs> you can actually see the city from that hill now. You know, like the pollution is minimal. There's still some there. Don't get me wrong, it will be there for a long time. We live in a place that's actually in a dip in the land anyway, and we're surrounded by mountains. But it was just fascinating. I really kind of like that. There's been a lot of positives that have happened, especially in the way that people live their lifestyle. Yeah. And because people can't go out every day to buy food, for instance, you get a lot less waste because right. all of a sudden we we have to do things like pantry challenges, you know, like what have you got in your pantry? Let's make <laughs> something out of that. All of a sudden we're all master chefs. <laughs> in our own this kitchen. is what's really interesting is that people are doing this voluntarily and in fact yeah. joyfully well at least this is the best we could do in the circumstances and you know using up all the extra stuff instead of just throwing out the odds and ends three years later when it goes off mm. using up all the stuff and making use of what we've got and um uh, i was delighted to receive in the mail from you uh, a handmade face mask which is uh, brilliantly done 
And this sort of thing, I mean, we would have just said, oh, let's go out and buy one. But, you know, it's been handmade and it's actually more durable, more, util- you know, it's more utility mm. than some hand masks. It might not be at the top level of medical specialization, but most of the stuff we buy isn't. It's just mm. convenient to go and pay someone money to get a disposable thing instead of us actually taking pride in and actually making an effort to produce something that's 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 made with love, but also made with the resources we have. It's kind of fascinating too, that face mask thing, because in America they're telling people just to wrap T-shirts around their head. You know, like... Because <laughs> high-tech responses. <laughs> high-tech responses, because they all have to wear masks over there. It's actually become the norm for them. Yeah. And it takes very little to actually make a mask, but you actually have to sit down and learn how to do right. it you know like so it makes it, it takes an effort you yeah, do you do need things effort. like a sewing machine or something like that and i think i mentioned too you know like at first it started off as a bit of a joke and one of those kind of morbid amusements that i had that i was sending these all out as souvenirs of covid-19 <laughs> which is really so, terrible when i say it out loud but it's a 2020 postcard <laughs> yeah in my head it was really funny but it, it turned into, as we were making these masks, because my daughter and I made them together, it turned into this act of thought and love for people yeah. that we are connected to. It's personal. To. Yeah, yeah. It, is per- it does become this personal thing, even down to choosing the material that we yeah. use for them and trying to get the gaudiest material yeah. for people. I didn't give you the Mario one. I had one with like little Marios and the princess as well on it. But I stupidly had only made those in a small size. So you didn't get that one. But I am considering getting some more of that. Um, I think what you've said just then is really important, the personal element of it. One of the things that I've noticed and I've really missed in the debate about ecology is that on the one side you've got, and this is, again, I don't like to divide it into two sides because there's huge amount of complexity in the debate but you seem to have one group of people screaming um global warming or global climate change as if you know the end of the world's just around the corner now they might be right but the 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 dates that they've been putting on this have been going since about 1980s and it's it's hard it's easy for people to discredit this when they can point to a whole bunch of disastrous states Mm. which have been listed and they haven't come about alarmism only works in the short term and while it seems to get attention, when it doesn't obviously become an issue very quickly on, it makes it too easy to dismiss. And people, and the opposite problem is happening now, that the alarmism has lost its sting. It's it's lost mm. its um, power. And then people have gotten so used to denying it and ignoring it that it's become a habit to ignore any kind of, uh, any kind of message which says, hey, we should actually give a crap about our environment. Let's really try and do something practical. But you, you've brought it back to the personal there, and I think that's where it's at. It, yes, we need to hold industry to account because they're doing a lot of silly things for financial reasons. Yes, we absolutely should hold governments to account for this sort of thing as well. But we won't want to descend into the kind of hopelessness that this problem's too big, we can't tackle it personally. Little things like, like just the way we live, simple living, making sure we make best use of our our resources, that kind of thing uh, can be a big deal. I mean, have you seen the cash for containers? Do you have the cash for containers scheme down we there? We do, we do, yep. Yeah, I love that scheme so much. I think it's, I mean, I find it fun to go and <laughs> take my containers <laughs> to the container place and watch it go on the little conveyor belt. 
the money is by the by for me. I just like that I know that it is going somewhere where something yep. is actually being done with it. I think yeah. part of the problem here too is not just what you said, but it's also that desensitization of people who don't want to hear that negative messaging all the time. Remember when I um, started that business the very first time and I was trying to, there was so much negative messaging around the environment and the idea of climate change was really difficult to wrap your head around. Even for someone who had studied the environment, it's such a big issue yeah. that the normal layperson can't understand. It's like the concept of infinity, you know, like you can't really understand what <laughs> infinity is because you will never attain it. You will never reach what infinity is. The same mm. with climate change. It's really hard to conceptualise it. And it's too big to all, fit in one head. It is. And all that negative messaging that was sent out there really impacted people in that they didn't want to hear about it anymore. It was so yep. depressing and so big and so hard to understand that people just turned off from it. And so when I started the business, we really focused on positive messaging and trying to understand what individuals could do. Just little things, you know, like make a worm farm, compost your scraps, take your cutlery with you do little things <laughs> and those little things help you to feel more positive about making yeah. changes and help you to see environmental issues differently as well also choosing your products carefully i mean you and i have joked about this but um mm. one of the practical examples of this is a company who uh deal with toilet paper oh, and, who uh, gives a crap who gives a crap, indeed, and they, they very <laughs> cleverly name themselves that. And they basically, it's just a an ethical, mm. environmentally friendly sort of process of making the stuff, mm -hmm. and then they invest their profits in good causes. So mm. the, I mean, it's a simple idea. I'm not saying mm. it's the be-all and end-all, and I'm not advocating because I haven't checked into what they send money to, but I'm just simply saying the idea of creating a company that specifically addresses a need, so it produces a, a well a used product, as we've just found out in recent months, mm -hmm. um, and it produces it in an ethical way and it looks after the environment instead of doing it in a slightly more cheap way, which mm. which doesn't have the same care. That's a really good example of um, of just working innovatively and locally to, to solve a problem. Mm. I really like products and companies that do that as well, you know, like take it from the very beginning to the end it's that whole lifespan of the product kind of thing and then beyond too who grows a crap is a really good example of an amazing company as a, i was talking to you about the fact that i started with them when they were a really small company and they were only in australia they used to source all their um the waste paper that goes into making the toilet paper locally as well so it only came from australia so they were helping us with our waste problem and then they made the toilet paper and they sent it out to people. It, you did it on a subscription basis or you could buy, you know, one at a time. They expanded their product line to include paper towel and stuff. But they also gave back to communities. So their money actually goes towards um, building toilets in third world countries which and helping with their sanitation, which is actually really good branding because it all is on point all the way down the line, you know, like... It takes it takes crap. It helps you deal with your crap, and it helps other people deal with crap too. So, yay! <laughs> 
All right, well, let's not become an infomercial for that particular company. <laughs> Who gives a crap? Do you want me to say but, it again? Who gives a crap? <laughs> <laughs> the toilet I'm paper just, for the layperson. <laughs> the, um, I mean, one of the, the peop- things that people complain about is it costs slightly more, and you say, well, yeah, okay, but what's the cost of having the absolute cheapest product whatsoever? I think in terms of caring for the environment, we've noticed that one of the biggest changes in industrial um, waste and pollution since the shutdown was in the industrial areas of China. Like there's entire areas that have cleared mm. out in terms of pollution, which is a, a, a location of a fair amount of the world's um, processing and mm. um, industrialization. Huge amount of Australian companies go offshore with their mm. product precisely because it costs them less because the way it's done is done by things which aren't actually legal in Australia or, or perhaps... Mm would be done differently in Australia. Mm. Now, I mean, of course, there's, of course, problems with our But, I mean, uh, it's not the true cost of things, is it? What we are paying is not the true cost of that thing. And I think that's where minimalism is really interesting in that you buy less but you buy quality things. And that takes you back to a way of life that we used to be living. But it doesn't have to, I mean, we don't all have to live rurally and have a farm and chickens and all the rest of it. (laughs) Granted, I really like chickens and I think that we should all have backyard chickens, but that is another story altogether. It's that idea that you have things, the whole Marie Kondo thing kind of feeds into that too and the way that people really held on to that idea. You know, you have things that are meaningful to you, that bring you joy and that have yep. a purpose. They can be beautiful and still be purposeful. Our whole culture seems to be built around the consumerist thing. So, for example, hmm. uh, two th- one, th- one little anecdote I'll share here, and I think I've said it before on the podcast, is I once said aloud in a classroom, um, which included business students in it, what would happen if we stopped buying things we didn't need? Hmm. And um, most people just were thoughtful, but the business students nearly had a fit, and they said, our economy would collapse. Now, I thought they were being a bit melodramatic and I went to the business lecturers and asked them. And sure enough, they said, yeah, well, actually, this would be a very serious blow because a huge amount of our economy relies on that consumer spending. Mm. Uh, And we're just cycling products through our homes eventually into landfill. Mm. Um, But advertising works at us constantly to say, you need this, you need it, you really do. And you look at it and say, really? Do I need that? Mm. I, I don't know if I do. That idea of consumer spending too, right now with the bonus that people are getting is kind of interesting because I was talking to Glenn and I said, you know, like, we don't get that bonus. What? Why don't we get it? And he said, well, because they looked at this and the idea was that if they give the bonus to people who are actually going to spend, he said, if we got that bonus money, if we got $1,500 today, what would we do with it? And I said, well, we'd put it in the bank and save it. Because he was like, yeah, but that's not kickstarting the economy, is it? And he said, that is yeah. exactly why we don't get that money. It's because that's we're right. not pumping it back into the economy and kickstarting it. Yeah. And that idea of mindless consumerism, though, you know, like go out and buy stuff just because you can. Also, it's become a coping mechanism for us. So lots of people are doing retail therapy online now. Uh, you know, I'm really, really bored. Uh, what what can I do? Get someone to look forward to something like someone coming to my house. Well, I'm going to order something, and it'll come two days later. Mm. And and there goes Dan Murphy again. Um, yeah. <laughs> the whole. <laughs> or what, what was he called again? Harold Taylor? No, I'm just kidding. Um, the um the whole point of um 
just buying for because I'm bored or because mm-hmm. I want something a bit new or I want a new experience or I, I it gives me a thrill to have something new. This we we can change that by just changing the way we entertain ourselves. We can choose a different way. We can choose a different kind of experience that actually mm. uh, brings us some sort of joy. But do you know what? I have seen more fathers out on the roads around this area with their children playing and I've seen more people playing out in the parks with their families than I have seen in years. Yep. It has been incredible to see that kind of lifestyle shift as well. And uh, while people may be buying frivolously, I honestly don't know. I haven't bought anything. Um <laughs> <laughs> I just haven't, mainly because we got stuck into making face masks, <laughs> which took forever. <laughs> but also because I think that for me, the experience is more important than the thing. And remember that year that we did the stuffed experiment where we That's decided right. yep. we weren't going to buy anything new the whole year. If something broke, we had to get it repaired. If we wanted new clothes, we had to buy second hand. Everything had to be, there was no new buying, so there was no bringing new products in. I think that one of the things that my children tell me that they remember most starkly was we went to see Wicked that year. It was the year of the floods um, and we couldn't take our car in because the car parks had been flooded. So we took a limo in instead because there were 10 of us and it was going to cost about the same amount for a taxi. Right. So... They got that memory, but when we got there, my daughter was about eight at the time and she turned around and she really wanted to buy a souvenir because, you know, they push those souvenirs at shows like Wicked and you know all the great big musicals that tour around because that's where they make a lot of their money. And having to explain to her in the middle of rampant consumerism that the memories aren't in the things, the memories are in us instead and that she had to shift her thinking then to understand that you don't need those things you just need to search your mind for that memory if you want it that badly and that is your souvenir instead in fact living the experience is often much better than the um than watching on video i mean i've several things i've seen back on video and thought the experience of being there was actually Mm. what was important about that Mm, um, yeah, having a absolutely. visual memory, yeah, especially live shows. Live shows are incredible, but that being said, <laughs> the, there's something to be said for, you know, the amount of shows that are streaming right now. <laughs> uh, you see my Facebook feed; it's just filled with stuff that I'm constantly <laughs> distracted by. You know, like give me all the shows from the National Theatre Company, and yeah, and Patrick Stewart. Captain McCard doing Shakespeare. Yes, please. Thank yes, you. yes, indeed. I mean, some of them. <laughs> my feed is my feed has got uh, grandparents reading stories to their kids um, over video chat. So just you know, I've been following a couple of books that the grandparent will read a chapter a night to their grandkids mm. over over Facebook yeah. feed or something. It's just a lovely human touch, and it's an insight, if you like, into some aspects of uh, family life, mm. but. It's not a substitute for those things and it's not a substitute for the actual experience. So I've been talking to a lot of people about virtual experiences because um, Mm. one of the things that happens at our university is if someone goes on a pilgrimage, we allow that to build build like an academic experience around that 
um, what do you mean and by reflect, that? Uh, so if they go on a pilgrimage, it's like a religious journey to a place that's significant uh, for our faith. Uh, they might mm. go to the Holy Land where Christ was, or they might go to a particular saint's hometown or something and, and visit it as a kind of a religious journey where they pray there. And there's a certain benefit to it in Catholic thought. Mm-hmm. And we would normally set them up with the theory of it beforehand. They go there and then they reflect mm. on the experience based on the, th- the theory later. So it's mm. kind of a how does theory and reality work together? Mm. They can't go at the moment. So we've been mm. talking about um, virtual pilgrimages and, and like reading and watching videos of these places. And clearly it is not the same. It's it's just not the same experience. But is it not the same experience because people just aren't used to experiencing like that? You know, like in some ways, I mean, I did a whole degree on digital virtual experiences here, Pete. <laughs> don't make <laughs> hey, me rant about it. Hence my baiting you. Hence my baiting you. Thanks very much about that because, you know, <laughs> If you immerse yourself, it's about the immersion and the connection and the attachment. If the idea is that this person is going to this place because they need to think about something in a particular way, Mm -hmm. then why can't they do that virtually? There's something about being a body. But you have to be able to shift your thinking. Mm, Well, I mean, I think that being in body is overrated. <laughs> I I mean I have a love for the virtual. I see a lot of the virtual art gallery tours yep. for instance that they're doing right now, but when I was in that virtual world of second life and I still am in there mm-hmm. sporadically now, the virtual tours in there are much more advanced than the tours that they're actually doing in the art galleries because you can embody into an avatar and then move your avatar around. And that kind of attachment allows you to experience something on a deeper emotional level. And when you are talking about that deeper emotional level with pilgrimage, for instance, maybe it's just that they're not feeling that same attachment level. Uh, about the physical thing, I'm just saying that the virtual pilgrimage isn't the same as a real pilgrimage. It, it's not Because like, of for your instance, idea of embodiment. Yeah, uh, a virtual friendship is an excellent thing, and and we can be friends in a way that's um, amazing over over technology. But it doesn't substitute for for catching up in person, for for actually being in the same space as someone, for for hanging mm. out, for for a decent hug, for a for a um. Yes and no. Um, I mean, I knew you for years before I met you in real life. That's true. That's true. And it wouldn't have been possible without technology, and uh, a certain amount of bad computer game playing. Yeah, <laughs> and I wouldn't say that our friendship is any different for having met physically. No, like, but I don't. To me, we're it's both not. people who are fairly grounded in the physical world, and we have families and other things outside that are very much physical. Mm. I'm talking about when someone's sole experience of a certain thing is is purely virtual. The reason I'm kind of pushing this way, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Ready Player One or read the book. Yeah. I didn't like the ending of it and I didn't like the the message of it, but it seems to be a kind of a message in it that if you get too far into the virtual, you end up neglecting the real world and therefore everyone in that story had totally given up on the ecology of the world. They'd given up on the world itself. It had just gone to rack and ruin and everything was gone to poo and uh, pollution's just gone to overcome everything. Everything's a wasteland. And so they, they all chose to live in the what they called the oasis, which is this mm. this 
virtual beautiful online community mm, and that the, mm. there was a kind of an undertone to it that living that way ends up meaning neglecting reality ready player one was interesting but it's not exactly how we are no i understand what you're saying about embodiment and that idea of the physicality of our world um i mean i will always be grounded in the real world even when i did that art degree halfway through it Remember, I was just so frustrated with constantly being inside and being living in a virtual world that I took a sharp turn and did the quiet days of digital trees. And I started, <laughs> remember how I was doing those um, paintings where if you walked close to them, you got the ambient sound of their environment. Yep. And then when you touch them, you got the sound of the actual tree. And I had to spend weekends out in the middle of forests, getting those <laughs> recordings to those trees. But I remember that time, even though at the time I found it very frustrating because there was lots of mosquitoes in mangrove forests and midges, especially on dusk and dawn, I really look back on those times and remembered how much I needed to be out there in the right. world. Yep. And I think that there's always a part of us that will crave that kind of natural connection i hope there is, the i hope you're right but you and i have grown up with it in our childhood i'm watching some kids who you know if you if you tell them they shouldn't watch as much television and get outside um mm -hmm. they're, they're hor they look at you like you've grown a second head like what, what, yeah. are, what am i going to do out there there's nothing oh to do my out God, there yes you know jess and chloe were complaining at river just recently because she has a very different childhood because jess and chloe are jess these are your 10. children yeah sorry <laughs> Jess was 10 when I had River and Chloe was eight. And so there's a big divide in their ages. And they had a very different childhood to River right. in that when they were born, I was fully into, I was finishing up my environmental science degree and doing a lot of volunteering out in the environment. So I did a lot of tour guiding and stuff out there. And then I started an environmental business, of course. And so I used to chuck them out of the house. <laughs> and I just used to go, you've got an hour. And they'd be like, what? And I'm like, go out in the backyard and play. <laughs> Don't come back in for another hour. And yet we've never done that to River. So so that would be a culture shock when you get around to telling her that? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, but with River, with camping, for instance, taking her out, she makes it sound like we want to chop off her legs and stick her in a wheelchair and, you know, like we're right. cutting off her limbs in some way because there's no internet right and no wi-fi and yeah she only gets the amount of battery power that she has you know like she can't <laughs> plug in all of a sudden it's like you know you can do this it's all right yeah i wonder though i mean a lot of these things could actually work coming bringing it back to the environment a lot of these things could work for us if um if it's used well so um, my kids mm. have really this very brief foray into virtual reality i had with my kids I had them, instead of making it a big sort of whiz-bang thing, I had them walking through a, an, an African game park, you know, in the middle of an elephant mm. herd or yeah. or experiencing a balloon going up in the sky and how far mm. up it gets and what sort of the oxygen levels are and or, you know, just natural experiences um, for them to experience. And that some of them are aspiring to go and experience them really, mm. whereas some... Um, if we make virtual reality about its own thing, that it's separate, if you like, from mm. from the re what the rest of us are doing, it becomes a problem. Anyway, we're getting towards 
the end of the discussion. I think we've we've probably covered it well enough. The general idea is that leaving aside the political sort of machinations and the and the way some politicians use either for or against ecology to promote their own their own campaigns, mm. it's just a genuine human and dare I say it Catholic thing to do to give a crap about the environment and to actually work hard uh, to look after this gift we've been given. Mm. Um, that's probably enough for this week's podcast. If today's discussion got you arguing or thinking and uh, yelling at your podcast device, let us know. You can subscribe at thiscatholiclife.com.au. You can continue the conversation by joining our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook or Discord chats and find all the links in our show notes or on the website. Remember to write us a review on iTunes. Remember that this is a uniquely Australian Catholic podcast and we think that's an idea worth getting behind. So tell your friends. This is the part of a show, Alison, where we shout out to someone. Would you like to shout out to someone today? Shout out to me? No, don't put that in. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to shout out to who gives a crap for just giving a crap. Okay, there you go. I'd like to shout out to all the friends I have. Um, It may not have been evident in the the show, but uh, Alice is not a Catholic. She's not a Christian. Um, uh, But we have been very fine friends uh, for a long time. And I really value those people who I have different beliefs of, um, who I'm friends with. They keep me accountable. They keep me interested in life. And the discussions we have are often uh, quite a lot more profound and uh, far-reaching than some people who are probably closer to my beliefs. Thank you very much to all of you, and in particular to Alison for coming on today. That's all for now. Thank you for listening to This Catholic Life.